Welcome to Understanding Christianity. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Cole. I'm the lead pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. I also serve as a professor of New Testament, Old Testament, theology, church history, and ethics at Colorado Christian University. Over the past few podcasts, we've been looking at controversial doctrines within Christianity, doctrines that somehow people divide over or there's different denominations or different viewpoints. And today I want to tackle one that's probably the most difficult of the doctrines of grace that we as Reformed Calvinists, those who hold to the doctrines of grace or sovereign grace, believe in. Um, It's called limited atonement. Limited atonement. And the big question is, for whom did Christ die? And there's a lot of different opinions, so let's just dive right into this issue of limited atonement here on Understanding Christianity. He substituted himself as a sacrifice, as a sacrificial lamb, number one. Number two, he propitiated God's wrath, or he absorbed God's wrath, or he took God's full wrath. Number three, he reconciled us to the Father. He brought two parties that were estranged back into one, and he redeemed us. He bought us. He ransomed us out of slavery to sin and has set us free. That's what happened on the cross. Now, when we move into this issue of particular redemption, as we think about these realities, we've got to ask a question. And here's the ultimate question that Calvinists ask and Arminians ask. Did Jesus actually accomplish these things for sinners or by his dying did did he only make it possible for sinners to be saved what I want you to start thinking about the difference between the two views is Calvinism says these things were accomplished by Jesus Arminianism says these things were made possible but not actual They're contingent upon the free will of people to accept what Jesus did. Calvinists say, no, these are a done deal. So when you look at this whole issue of particular redemption, it's, is it an actual, real, bona fide atonement where Jesus accomplished these things? Or is it a hypothetical, theoretical atonement that makes salvation a possibility? Depending on how you answer that question will determine your view of the atonement. Now, At the beginning, I said both sides limit the atonement. Both sides put a limitation on Christ's work on the cross. The Arminian limits the atonement in its effects. The Calvinist limits the atonement in its scope. Now, I'm going to go on to explain how each side believes what they believe. But just take my word for it, those are the two views. Now, I don't like the word limited, atonement, because limited makes it sound like there's a limitation put upon the cross of Christ. Let me just say from the very beginning, the death of Jesus Christ on the cross provides an unlimited amount of grace, and it displays His glory in a way that is amazing. So when we use the word limited, sometimes Arminians get a little bothered by Calvinists when we use the word limited atonement because they think that somehow we're downplaying the atonement. We're saying the atonement is not as precious, that we're, that we're nullifying the cross and the blood of Jesus. We're not doing that. We're saying the atonement is infinitely precious. What Jesus did is infinitely precious. We're not, we're not downplaying the atonement when we use the word limited. So here's the question. Here's the real question for tonight. 
It's the $10 million question related to the difference between Calvinism and Arminianism. And it's this. For whom did Christ die? And let me ask it a different way. There's two ways you can ask it. For whom did Christ die? Or what was Christ's intention or purpose when he died on the cross? Obviously, Jesus died on the cross. Obviously, he propitiated God's wrath. He reconciled sinners. He brought about redemption. He died as a substitute. But what was his intention? What was his purpose in doing that? And then for whom did Christ die? Let me give you the Arminian answer to this. And then I'll give you the Calvinist answer. The Arminian answer to this question is that Jesus Christ died on the cross to make salvation possible, possible for all people everywhere. People who've lived in the past or living now and will live. The atonement, all those things that Jesus did that we talked about, those four things, those four things only become effective for them when they, by their free will, put their faith in Jesus Christ. So in other words, those four realities are activated once you, by your free will, trust in Jesus Christ. Okay? It's a possibility. The atonement was makes salvation possible with the idea that no one would ever come. In the Arminian scheme, Jesus could have died on the cross and no one ever be saved if nobody used their free will to come to him. Now let me give you the Calvinist view. The Calvinistic answer is that Jesus Christ died on the cross to actually secure the salvation of all the elect. And the atonement actually purchased the gifts for them of repentance and faith even to accept Jesus Christ as Savior. Your ability to even trust in Jesus Christ, your ability to repent and believe in Him, Calvin has said those are actually purchased by Jesus on the cross and given to you as a gift. So your ability to even trust in Him, to believe in Him, aren't of yours. Jesus paid for those for you on the cross and gave those to you in regeneration, which we'll talk about in a few weeks. Lorraine Bettner has written a book, The Reformed Doctrine of Predestination. Um, and he says this, He describes the differences this way. He says, For the Calvinist, the atonement is like a narrow bridge which goes all the way across the river. For the Arminian, it is like a great wide bridge that only goes halfway across. What he's saying is for the Calvinist, Jesus actually did it. He accomplished the salvation of his elect. Bonafide, guaranteed, accomplished it. For the Arminian, Jesus made it possible. He, he, he went halfway. He made it possible. You've got to use your free will to, to, to make that step of faith. And once you trust in Jesus, then the effects of the atonement become beneficial for you. Now let me look, let's look at the, the lips of Jesus. Because we're, we're talking about Jesus. I said we kind of look at Jesus first and see what Jesus had to say before we go to Paul and some other writers in the New Testament. So let's turn to John chapter 10. And let's look at verses 11 through 15. And see what John has to say, or what Jesus has to say in the book of John. John 10, 11 through 15. This is one of the I am statements of Jesus. He has seven of these I am statements in the book of John. John 10, 11, or John 10, verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. 
he flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. In the Greek construction, it's very strong. The sheep. Not just sheep. Jesus says, I lay down my life for a group of people called the sheep. Now, as we've looked at this all along, especially in the Gospel of John, who are these sheep? All that the Father gives to me will come to me. So another way of saying the sheep are the, all those that have been given to Jesus by the Father. Does Jesus die on the cross for the goats? It says, I lay down my life for the sheep. They know me. I know them. Now, let's go to John 17, verse 19. John 17. Before we get to verse 19, let me just kind of give some backup here. Let's go to verse, um, verse 2. This is Jesus' high priestly prayer, John 17, 2. This kind of takes us back a little bit under the whole unconditional election um, part. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you've given him. Okay, go down to verse 6. I have manifested your name to the people who you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now, verse 9, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those who you have given me, for they are yours. Now, all along, Jesus is, trend, is making a contrast between who? Those in the world and those whom the Father has given him out of the world. And he says, I do some things for those people that you've given me out of the world. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world. Now, with that context being laid, go down and look at verse 19. Jesus says, And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. Now, what does it mean that Jesus consecrates himself? Does that mean Jesus makes himself holy? Well, obviously not, because Jesus is already sinless and perfect. That term, consecrate there, means to set himself apart for a particular purpose. It really means the cross. I'm going to the cross. I'm going to consecrate myself on the cross for their sake. Whose sake? Who's he just said? If, we just, if you just trace everything back in, in chapter 17, who's the there that he's going to consecrate? Who's going to die for? Those whom you have given me, Father, out of the world. I am dying for them. I'm consecrating myself for them. I'm going to the cross for them. So here's the issue. The issue is not... Is the atonement effective to save sinners? Obviously it is, because Jesus' blood is not shed in vain. The real question is, what did the atonement actually affect? What did it accomplish? What happened? What did Jesus do? What was the intention? What was the effect? What did Jesus actually accomplish? And you've got the two views here. Did Jesus accomplish a hypothetical or a theoretical atonement. And what I mean by theoretical or hypothetical is this. There could be a possibility that Jesus would die and nobody would ever use their free will to come to him. Think about that. 
Jesus could have died on the cross and nobody be saved. Because if it was left up to free will, what could have happened in a hypothetical world? Nobody would have chosen Christ. Everybody would have hypothetically not accepted Jesus. So Jesus could have died on the cross with nobody being saved. Or the other question is, was it a definite atonement? Was it an actual atonement? Was it atonement that actually accomplished something? Did it actually propitiate? Did it actually redeem? Did it actually reconcile sinners to God? Now let's look at some verses that seem to indicate that Jesus died for a particular group. Okay? Matthew 121. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Who is Jesus going to save? His people. Does the text say Jesus is going to make salvation possible for his people? Does it say Jesus is going to provide a hypothetical atonement so that if people use their free will, they can be saved? What does it say? Jesus will save. He will save them. He will save his people. Not a hypothetical situation, not a possibility. He will actually save his people. Matthew 20, 28. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. Either Jesus gave his life as a ransom or he didn't. Either he paid for a group of people, he purchased a group of people, or he just made it a hypothetical reality that he potentially or hypothetically gave his life as a ransom for many. Okay, let's look at John 11, 50-52. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So Jesus says here he's dying for two particular groups of people. Who's he dying for? He's dying for the nation, which would be who? The Jews or Israel but also for the children of God who are scattered. Now we have to ask a question. Who are the children of God that are scattered? In John's mind, you've got the nation, you've got Jews, God's chosen people, and you've got this other group of people who Jesus died for, the scattered children. Who are the scattered children? Us, Gentiles. Gentiles, they're the scattered children that will be brought in. Now let's review the context of John for just a moment. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. So will these scattered children come to Jesus? Yes, they will come. They are the sheep. John 10, 14-16. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. I lay my life down for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. They will listen to my voice. There will be one flock, one shepherd. What does Jesus say right there? I'm dying for the sheep, but there's another group of sheep that I need to bring in so that there's one flock. This sheep are the scattered children, i.e., they are the Gentiles. Now, 
1 John 2.2. A lot of Arminians go to 1 John 2.2 and use this as proof saying, Ah, Jesus died for the sins of the whole world. Not just for his elect, but Jesus died for all people everywhere, everyone who's ever lived. 1 John 2.2. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. Now, wait a minute. That sounds like it's not limited atonement, doesn't it? Sounds like Jesus is dying for the sins of the whole world. But look at the text carefully. He is a propitiation for whose sins? Our sins. Who's the writer of 1 John? John. What is John? John is a Jew. What has he used all through the gospel of John? So when he says, the Calvinistic view is, when he says not only for ours, what they believe is that he's not just dying for Jews, but he's dying for the scattered children, the scattered sheep, the elect Gentiles that are all throughout the entire world. And how do we see this fulfilled? Who writes Revelation? John. How do you think John's going to color it all in in the end? John 5 9 through 10. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our gods, and they shall reign on the earth. Now, we see all nations, right? Jews, Gentiles, the people of God, the scattered children, all the sheep together as one flock before the throne. What does Revelation not say? What does it not say? By your blood, you ransomed every single person from every tribe, language, people, and nation. Does it say that? You ransomed what? People. For God. From. It's the Greek preposition ek. It means out of. You ransomed people out out of every tribe. Jesus didn't ransom every single person who ever lived. He ransomed people from every tribe, language, nation, and people group so that there will be a representation of all people groups before the throne there at the end in Revelation when we're in heaven. Let's look at some more scriptures. Romans 5.10. For why, We looked at this earlier when we talked about reconciliation. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. Now, if Jesus' atonement actually reconciled, what would be the result? Every single person would be reconciled. Is that true? Is every single person reconciled to God? Obviously not, because there's people in hell right now that aren't. So either Jesus really reconciled people or he made it a potentiality. Let's look at another passage of Scripture. Romans 8, 32-33. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Now, let's just be real careful there. He gave him up for us all. Who is the all there? Is it all people? Every single person who's ever lived? What's the qualifier? Verse 33. 
Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Even if that were not there, what does the rest of the sentence say? Will he not graciously give us all things? Does God graciously give all things to every single person who's ever lived? Only those that have been given up for by his son. Ephesians 5, 25 through 27. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Who does Jesus specifically die for? The church. Now, let's just pretend like we're polygamous for a moment. In a polygamous society, what happens? You have numerous wives, right? Is that the intention of the Bible? No. One man, one woman, you love your wife exclusively. I love Don exclusively. I don't love every single woman. I love Don. She is selective. She is exclusive. Jesus loves his church, the sheep, the elect, his bride, exclusively. Okay, now let's look at Hebrews because a lot of things happen in Hebrews. I know I'm going pretty fast tonight, but I got a lot to cover and we can maybe answer some questions. But Hebrews, we look at this whole issue of Jesus being the high priest. And oftentimes in discussions of the atonement, we leave out the high priestly function of Jesus Christ and what, he, what, he, what he's doing right now as our high priest. But before we look at Jesus as a high priest, what did the high priest do in the Old Testament? Aaron and his sons. What was the role of the high priest? Does anybody know what the, what the high priest wore? An ephod, a special gown. And what was on the ephod? Twelve stones that represented what? The twelve tribes of Israel. So when the priest would go into the Holy of Holies, he would wear the ephod with the twelve stones embedded in it, representing that he was going in. And who was he representing when he went into that Holy of Holies? He was representing just the twelve tribes of Israel, God's people. He wasn't representing the Edomites. He wasn't representing the Philistines. He wasn't representing the Egyptians. He was representing God's people, the Israelites. So those stones around his, on his chest were a visual reminder to the priest that I am interceding, I am making atonement, I am going in and sacrificing strictly for the people of God. I'm not making an atonement for the Edomites. Their sins are not being covered on the Day of Atonement. It's only for God's people. So what does the priest do? He does two things. The priest does two things in Israel. Number one, he made sacrifice for the children of Israel. He goes into the Holy of Holies. He is the representative. He's the mediator. He is the one who makes a sacrifice. He slaughters the lamb. He's got all the blood, the hyssop. It's a bloody mess. But the priest is the one that goes in there and makes atonement, makes sacrifice in the Old Testament. And he makes sacrifice, because he's got those 12 stones, he makes sacrifice strictly for the Israelites. What else does the priest do? He prays. He offers prayers on behalf of the people. He prays only for the Israelites. He doesn't pray for the Edomites. He doesn't pray for the Ishmaelites. He doesn't pray for the Moabites. He doesn't pray for the Canaanites. He doesn't pray for any other ite, even the termites, I guess. I don't know if there were termites. He prays exclusively for the children of Israel. 
Now, with that in mind of what the Old Testament priests did, where's the ephod, represents just the people of Israel, sacrifices just for the people of Israel, prays just for the people of Israel, mediates, intercedes just for the children of Israel, let's go to Hebrews and see how Jesus fulfills the high priestly role on behalf of his people. Hebrews 7, 23 through 25. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, that's Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Three things we see in this passage. I'll just put them all up there so you can see. Number one, Jesus holds a perpetual priesthood. Jesus is in heaven right now as our high priest forever as a perpetual priest because he's the one that made the sacrifice. What did the priest do? He made the sacrifice. Jesus was not only the priest, but he was also the sacrifice. He's praying, he's interceding, he's the mediator, he's at the right hand of the Father acting as priest. It also says he's able to save to the uttermost. He's able to save to the other mace. He, it's not just a, he's making salvation possible. He saves. He cried out on the cross, what? It is finished. Why is he seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven? Why is he seated? Because his work is done. There's no more work to be done. He's sitting down. Not that he's resting, but he's sitting down as the completed work. He's saved to the uttermost. And then he always lives to make intercession. Jesus is always interceding on behalf of a people. He's making intercession. He's praying. He's representing. He's mediating right now for a group of people. So here's the basic question we've got to ask. Who, who is Jesus making intercession for? Who is Jesus being a mediator for? If you say that Jesus is a mediator for those who are in hell right now, we have a problem. Because if Jesus is interceding for those that are in hell, he has failed in his mission. Because they have not received Christ. They are suffering for their sins. So either Jesus intercedes on behalf of a group, the elect, or his intercession is is meaningless. Because he's not actually accomplishing anything in particular for a group of people. So the question is, does Jesus make intercession for the same group of people and die for the same people? Yes. It's as if Jesus is in heaven right now, not that he's wearing an ephod, but symbolically, Jesus has an ephod and the 12 stones are the elect that he has died for, that God has chosen, and Jesus is interceding for them and them alone. That's the Calvinistic view. Okay, Let's go on and read uh, Hebrews 9. 11 through 14. When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is none of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of, his, of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. I want you to pay attention to those words. What does it say? He secured a redemption. Did he make redemption hypothetical? Did he make it possible? Did he make people savable? 
Or did he actually obtain redemption? Did he actually buy something? Did Jesus get what he paid for when he died on the cross? This text says yes. For if the sprinkling of defiled persons with the blood of goats and bulls and with the ashes of a heifer sanctifies for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our consciences from dead works to serve the living God? So what I'm saying here is that Jesus did not make sinners savable. He saved. He secured a redemption. He got what he paid for. Artaxerxes says that a lot. Jesus got what he paid for. Nothing more, nothing less when he died on that cross. Now, let me talk to you about what the traditional Arminian view of is the atonement. You may be surprised at what the Arminian view is. If we were to have a traditional Arminian in here, this is what they would say the view of the atonement is. It's called the governmental view. How many of you... I'll, I'll wait till you write that down. How many of you, just by raising your hand, I'm sure all, hopefully all of you will raise your hand, have heard of the term substitutionary atonement? A substitutionary atonement. Jesus died as a substitute in your place. That is foreign to an Arminian. An Arminian does not believe in a substitutionary atonement. As a matter of fact, let me give you a quote from a leading Arminian scholar. This is from a man named Kenneth Greider. He, he has defined, in the Evangelical Dictionary of Theology, he's written an article called Arminianism. He is one of the leading, I think he's Nazarene. I'm not sure. He may be Wesleyan or Nazarene. But this is what he says about Arminianism's view of the atonement. He says this, quote, A spillover from Calvinism into Arminianism has occurred in recent decades. Thus, many Arminians whose theology is not very precise say that Christ paid the penalty for our sins. Yet such a view is foreign to Arminianism, which teaches instead that Christ suffered for us. Arminians teach that what Christ did, he did for every person. Therefore, what he did could not have been to pay the penalty, since no one would then ever go into eternal perdition. Arminianism teaches that Christ suffered for everyone so that the Father could forgive the ones who repent and believe. His death is such that all will see that forgiveness is costly and will strive to cease from anarchy in the world God governs. This view is called the governmental theory of the atonement. Does that surprise you? Because logically, an Arminian says, if Jesus died in the place of sinners then every sinner should be saved because Jesus made an atonement. So we're not going to believe in a substitutionary atonement because if we did, it leads to the fact that people would actually be saved and we see that not everybody's saved. So we'll have a different view of the atonement that says Jesus didn't die in the place of sinners. He just suffered as an example to show us that sin's a big deal to God. And if we repent and believe, then we get the benefits of the atonement. But when Jesus died on that cross, he was not substituting himself for anybody. He was not dying in the place of anybody. He was just suffering to show us how bad a deal sin was. So if you talk to a true Arminian, and they use the word substitutionary atonement, if they believe in classical Arminianism, they do not believe in a subs- that Jesus died in the place of sinners. So an Arminian really can't go to you and say, Jesus died for you. Well, Calvinists can't really do that either because we don't know. 
I can't go to you and say, Jesus died for you, because I don't know. I can say, Jesus died for sin, and you're a sinner, so trust in Jesus. Now, how does the governmental view hold up against Scripture? How does the view that Jesus did not die as a substitute, but just made salvation possible, he just suffered as a way to show us that sin's a big deal, and if we just by our free will trust in Jesus, we can have salvation as a possibility? Does the Bible teach substitutionary atonement? Because if it does, then we've got to come to grips with it. Does the Bible teach that Jesus died in the place of sinners? And I believe wholeheartedly it does. Let's look at some scriptures that teach this. 1 Peter 2.24. You don't even have, I'm going to teach you some Greek here in a minute, but you don't even have to know Greek to read this in your English. 1 Peter 2.24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed. What does that say? He bore our sins in his body. Whose sins did he bear? Our sins. Now, let me give you a little Greek lesson. You see a Greek word there? Some people think it looks like utep. It's the Greek word huper. Huper. It's a preposition. It's a very, 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 very important preposition in the Greek language. And I've given you three lexicons. You've got the New International Dictionary of New Testament Theology, the Basics of Biblical Greek Grammar, and Essentials of New Testament Greek. I've given you definitions from two of my Greek textbooks and a theological dictionary. And I could give you more, but let me give you what the definition of huper means. On behalf of, in the place of, as a substitute for, in behalf of, in behalf of, for the sake of. Does that sound like substitutionary atonement to you? Just in the preposition itself. The preposition itself means someone is doing something in the place of someone else, on behalf of someone else. Now, if that's what that Greek preposition means, in the place of, as a substitute for, where does that Greek preposition show up when it talks about the cross, when it talks about the atonement? Well, let's look. I've given you almost every case that it's shown up there. 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, who pair, for our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What's Paul saying there? Jesus died in our place. He substituted himself for our sake. He became sin for our sake. Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith and Son of God who loved me and gave himself, what? Who pair for me. He gave himself for me. What did he do? He gave himself. He died in the place of me. He substituted himself with me. How can you say, I am crucified with Christ if Christ didn't die in your place? That's the strongest statement that you can say, that I have had my sins covered by Jesus. He's died in my place as a substitute. Didn't just make salvation possible. Didn't just die to, to show how suffering, uh, just suffer to show how bad sin is. I am crucified with Christ because he died in my place. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who's hanging on a tree. How can Paul say that Jesus became a curse for us if Jesus' death was only a potential reality where he suffered, but he never died in the place of anyone in particular? And then Ephesians 5.25, we've already looked at this. 
Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Who pair? He gave himself up for her in the place of her. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 through 10. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Who pair? There it is. He died for us. Titus 2.14, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, who pair, to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Let me just tell you, here's my argument. This is the one point of Calvinism that I came kicking and screaming against. Because I had grown up my whole life thinking that Jesus Christ died on the cross for all people everywhere, people who lived in the past, people who are now living, and people who are going to live. Every man, woman, boy, and girl, Jesus died for every single person who's ever lived, is living, and will live when he died on the cross. Haven't we all heard that most of our lives? That Jesus died for the whole world, and that means every single person who ever lived. I believe differently now that Jesus only died for those that he intended to die for. And those were only the elect. And here's my arguments. It's just very simple in my mind. And I'll just read them to you. Either Jesus actually propitiated God's wrath on the cross or he didn't. Either Jesus actually accomplished redemption by purchasing a people or he didn't. Either Jesus became a curse in the place of sinners or he didn't. Either Jesus reconciled sinners to the Father on the cross or he didn't. It was either a full, completed, it is finished atonement Or it was simply hypothetical to make salvation possible for all who would come to faith with the reality that no one would ever come. And even further, let me just read this so I can make sure I articulate myself. If God's wrath was propitiated for every single person who ever lived, and Jesus accomplished redemption for every single person who ever lived, and Jesus became a curse for every single person who ever lived. And Jesus reconciled to the Father every single person who ever lived. I have a basic question, and it is this. Did I skip a blank? Okay, it's guarantees and savable. <laughs> I'll get back to my question. Here's my question. Why are people in hell right now? Just a very basic question. If Jesus accomplished full atonement on the cross, he propitiated God's wrath, he redeemed, he reconciled, he died in the place for sinners, then why are there people in hell? Have you thought about that? If Jesus did that for every single person who ever lived, there should be nobody in hell because everybody would have the wrath of God propitiated, everybody would be redeemed, everybody would be reconciled. And so obviously, there are people in hell today, why are they there if Jesus paid for their sins? If Jesus paid for their sins, why are they in hell? And let me just give it to you in another way. If their sins were atoned for, and God's wrath was absorbed on their behalf, and Jesus Christ died in their place as a curse, then what they are doing right now is they're suffering double jeopardy. They're suffering double jeopardy. Why are they suffering double jeopardy? Their sins have already been paid for. God's wrath has already been propitiated. They've already been reconciled. Why are they suffering again for something that Jesus already paid for? If Jesus already paid for those things, why are they suffering in hell and having to pay for it twice? They shouldn't have to. It's not just for God to send someone to hell who's already been propitiated. 
who's already been reconciled, who's already been redeemed. Why? Now let me just give you the response. What's the response? What what are you thinking right now? Why are people in hell? Most people will say this. Let me read it. The typical response goes something like this. Well, Jesus did atone for sinners. Jesus did die in their place. But the reason they go to hell is because they didn't receive what he did for them. He died for them, but they didn't accept the gift. The gift has been selected, the gift's been paid for, but no one can be forced to accept the gift. In other words, Jesus paid for the gift of eternal life on the cross for the entire world, but many will not be saved because they don't accept his gift. I've heard it said like this, you go to dinner, and I pay your dinner. The gift's been paid for. The the gift certificate's been paid for. Now it's your choice whether you're going to go to River City and take that gift certificate and actually cash in on what I've paid for. So some people will never go eat the meal that I've paid for, even though it's paid for, and that's why they go to hell, I guess you'd say. Jesus paid for their sins, but they never chose to receive the gift that he paid for them. But let me ask you a question. You have to think deeply about this. Do you understand the argument? The reason people go to hell is because they didn't believe. They didn't accept the gift. It was paid for, but they just didn't accept it. Well, In other words, what we're saying is the atonement doesn't become real. The atonement doesn't become activated. The atonement doesn't become a a real deal until they use their free will to accept it, until they repent. Now, here's 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 the problem for me on this. If, let's just say this, do you guys believe that Jesus died for all sins? All sins. Is there there one sin that Jesus didn't die, die on the cross for? The Bible is very clear that what? That Jesus died for all sin, right? Okay. What we're saying then is this. If Jesus paid for the gift and you didn't accept it, there's one sin that Jesus didn't pay for. What sin is that? Unbelief. Is unbelief a sin? Yes. So here's the argument for the Calvinistic side. Jesus died for all the sins of the elect. And if he died for all people everywhere, and you choose not to receive that gift, then there's one sin, or there's one sin for which Jesus Christ did not die, and that's the sin of your unbelief. And we know the Bible teaches that Jesus died for all sins, not just some sins. So we're left with three options. Okay, here's the three options you're left with. Number one. Either Jesus died for all the sins of all men. If Jesus died for all the sins of all men, what sin is covered? Unbelief, which means what? All people will be saved. That's almost leading to universalism. If Jesus died for all the sins of all people, then why are people not believing if that sin has been paid for, the sin of unbelief? Okay? Option number two is either Jesus died for all the sins of some men. That's the Calvinistic view. Jesus died for every single sin of some, of the elect. All the sins of the elect were paid for. Here's the third option. Either Jesus died for some 
of the sins of all men. Unbelief being the one he didn't die for. And if you're left with that, if there's one sin out there that Jesus didn't die for, then what does that mean? We're all condemned to hell. Because there's a sin out there that's not been paid for. There's a sin that's not been atoned for. John Owen, in his excellent book, The Death of Death and the Death of Christ, this book really helped change my thinking on this. It's a pretty laborious book, and it goes into a lot of detail, but it really helped my belief system. He says this, Why are not all free from the punishment of all their sins? You will say, because of their unbelief. They will not believe. But this unbelief, is it a sin or not? If not, why should they be punished for it? If it be, then Christ underwent the punishment due to it or not. If so, then why must that hinder them more than their sins for which he died from partaking of the fruit of his death? If he did not, then he did not die for all their sins. Here's the only tenable conclusion in my mind. And here's the Calvinistic position on the extent of the atonement. And I'll just read it to you. If Jesus died for all the sins of all people, except unbelief, then he did not die for all the sins of anybody. And so everybody must be condemned. There is no other position except that he did for, or he died for the sin of his elect people only. Now let me give you another Charles Spurgeon quote. In a, he had a sermon called Particular Redemption. How would you like if I preach a sermon? Today's sermon is going to be called Limited Atonement. I mean, you know, today's good. Here's his sermon. I'll, I'll read to you. Let me read to you a portion of, of Charles Spurgeon's sermon. I have hurried over that to come to the last point, which is the sweetest of all. Jesus Christ, we are told in our text, came into the world to give his life a ransom for many. The greatness of Christ's redemption may be measured by the extent of the design of it. He gave his life a ransom for many. I must now return to that controverted point again. We are often told, I mean those of us who are commonly nicknamed by the title of Calvinists, and we are not very much ashamed of that. We think that Calvin, after all, knew more about the gospel than almost any inspired man who's ever lived. We are often, to- we are often told that we limit the atonement of Christ because we say that Christ has not made a satisfaction for all men or all men would be saved. Now, our reply to this is that, on the other hand, our opponents limit it. We do not. The Arminians say Christ died for all men. Ask them what they mean by it. Did Christ die so as to secure the salvation of all men? They say certainly. No, certainly not. We ask them the next question. Did Christ die so as to secure the salvation of any man in particular? They answer no. They are obliged to admit this if they are consistent. They say no. Christ has died that any man may be saved if, and then follow certain conditions of salvation. We say then, we would just go back to the old statement. Christ did not die so as beyond a doubt to secure the salvation of anybody, did he? You must say no. You are obliged to say so, for you believe that even after a man has been pardoned, he may yet fall from grace and perish. Now, who is that? Who is it that limits the death of Christ? Why, you. 
You say that Christ did not die so as to infallibly secure the salvation of anybody. We beg your pardon when you say we limit Christ's death. We say, no, my dear sir, it is you that do it. We say Christ died so that he infallibly secured the salvation of a multitude that no man can number, who through Christ's death not only may be saved, but are saved, must be saved, and cannot be any possibility run the hazard of being anything but saved. You're welcome to your atonement. You may keep it. We will never renounce ours for the sake of it. It's Charles Spurgeon for you there. So let's look at John chapter 19, verses 28 through 30. John 19, 28 through 30. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine of hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. So what did Jesus cry out when he was on the cross? It is finished. Well, what was finished? What did he do that he accomplished? Well, if you look at the Greek tense, it's what's called the perfect tense. There's a tense in the Greek language that's, it, we have our normal past tense action. In English, it just an action came to a completion. Just a simple past tense action. In the Greek, this is called the perfect tense. The perfect tense is a, is a different type of tense. It means that an action came to a completion in the past, but the results or the effects stand completed in the present. So it makes it a whole lot more powerful when Jesus said, it is finished, meaning that it is finished, I finished it, and it stands finished today, it is completed today, it's a once and for all completed work of salvation. He paid it in full. Now turn over real quickly in John 17, and we'll find out what it is. When Jesus says, it is finished, it's just one Greek word, tetelestai. It's a declaration of victory that Jesus had accomplished something. So if you go back to John chapter 17, verses 1 through 4, you find out what it is that he has completed. So John 17, verses 1 through 4, we've, we've looked at this over and over again, but I want to keep drawing our attention back to it. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come, glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you've given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you've given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Jesus said, I've accomplished the work. That Greek word accomplished is really from the same Greek word that we get, it is finished. It means, I have completed the work. It is finished. It is a done deal. Now, what did Jesus not cry out on the cross? It is halfway completed. I made salvation possible for sinners. I gave my life so that someday somebody possibly could come to faith in Christ. It is hypothetical. Did Jesus cry those words out on the cross? What did he say? A strong declaration, it is finished. In other words, Jesus got 
what he paid for. So let me give you just a definition of limited atonement, just for, just for review's sake, as we review what we looked at last week. So here, here's it, here's it in, a, in a paragraph. In his death on the cross, Jesus got what he paid for. Christ did not die to simply make it possible for God to pardon sinners. Neither did God leave it up to sinners to decide whether or not Christ's work will be effective. On the contrary, all for whom Christ sacrificed himself will be saved infallibly. Redemption, therefore, was designed to bring to pass God's purpose of election. Thus, Christ's saving work was limited in that it was designed to save some and not others, but it was not limited in value, for it was of infinite worth and would have secured salvation for everyone if this had been God's intention. In his atonement, Christ purchased everything that the elect need in order to be saved, including the gifts of repentance and faith. Okay, so when we look at the two different views, limited atonement, particular redemption, what we're saying is is that Jesus' intention in dying on the cross was to save only those whom the Father had given him, a select group of people. In the Arminian view, Jesus dies for every single person, past, present, and future, who ever lived. And really, remember what we said, the Arminians don't believe in a substitutionary atonement. They don't believe that Jesus actually died in the place of sinners. He died to make salvation possible. He suffered as an example that sin's a big deal. But you'll talk to a true Arminian and they won't believe in substitution, that Jesus actually died in the place of any sinner. So you have those two views. So the term limited is somewhat misleading. Um, I don't like the term irresistible grace that we're going to talk about next week. Some of these tulip acrostics, I don't like the terminology. Limited makes it sound like somehow there's a limit in something going on in the atonement. What we do not mean is this. We do not mean, and why, there we go. We do not, whoa, let me go back. We do not mean that there is a limit to the value or the sufficiency of the atonement. When we say it's limited, we're saying it's limited in the fact that it's limited only in its intention to save those for whom it was intended to save. But Jesus' death is, intim- is, 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 is ultimately valuable, it's supreme, it's sufficient. Jesus' death was valuable and sufficient to cover all the sins of all people if that was his intention. So we're not putting a limit on the value or the sufficiency. Okay? Also, you may think, well, if you believe that Jesus only died on the cross for his elect, then that means you can't share the gospel with anybody. You might as well just not preach the gospel. What we're also not saying is this. We're not saying that the gospel shouldn't be preached. We're not saying the gospel shouldn't be preached to all people everywhere. We give the universal call of the gospel to all people. Just because if you're a Calvinist and you believe Jesus only died for his elect doesn't give you the right to to not preach the gospel to everybody. Because what do you not know? You don't know who the elect are. So you share the gospel with every single person out of obedience to Jesus. Jesus said, go into all creation, go into all the world, go into all nations and preach the gospel. So limited atonement or definite redemption doesn't affect your evangelism. You preach the gospel. You give the gospel call to everywhere. In other words, what some Calvinists will say is this. The atonement was sufficient for all people, but is only efficient for some people, namely the elect. Now, let's just do a little bit of review of what we talked about last week. 
In the Arminian viewpoint, the governmental view of the atonement, where Jesus did not die as a substitute, Jesus did not die for anybody in particular. In other words, Jesus could have, in a hypothetical world, what could have Jesus done? Jesus could have died on the cross and nobody be saved. Because if God is standing back, waiting for people to use their free will to trust in Christ, what hypothetical reality could there be? Nobody would come. So Jesus could have died and nobody come to salvation in the Arminian view. In the Calvinist view, Jesus dies specifically in the place as a substitute for those that he had been given by the Father. Now, what I want us to look at tonight for a while are the problem texts. If you're thinking about some Bible verses that seem to teach that Jesus died for everybody, what do you do with those texts? Do you just throw those out of the Bible and say, well, um, we're just Calvinists, we're not going to believe those texts? What do you do? So I want to look at a few problem texts that, when I say problem texts, at first glance they seem to be maybe a problem that may refute limited atonement. So the first one is 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 6. And we're just going to read it at face value. And one of the things that I want you to really pay close attention to, especially when you do Bible study, what's one of the most important things that you can do? Context, context, context. What's going on around the passage, before the passage, after the passage? What's, I mean, we can look at a verse in isolation, but how does it all fit together? So let's look at 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 6. Paul says, First of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. So what's he saying? We should be praying for who? All people. Verse 2, he gets a little bit more specific. Now, here's a principle that I hold to in Bible interpretation. When you have a general statement, you want to look and see what the specific statements are that modify the general statement. Because the specifics oftentimes are what actually define the general statement. So what's the general statement here? Prayer should be made for what? All people. Verse 2, we get the specifics. For who? Kings and all who are in high positions. That we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Now, verse 4 says, God desires for all people to be saved. I thought the Calvinist view said Jesus only died for some people. This seems to sound like that God wants all people to be saved. So how do we reconcile this? What does this mean? Well, what's the context? What's the context? What's Paul asking them to be doing, first of all? He's urging them to pray for what? For people who are in authority. Kings, those in high positions. He says, I want you to send out prayers for all people. Now, does Paul mean here that we should pray for every single person who's ever lived? Is that what he's doing? Is he saying, get out the phone book in Jerusalem and go down every single name and pray for every single person? Or is he in a general sense saying, I want you to pray for all classes or types of people? 
All classes are types of people. There's kings, that's a class. There's those that are in authority. There's Jews, there's Gentiles, there's men, there's women. When we sometimes say all, do we mean all? If I said, I want all, I want all of you to come to church next Sunday, who's the all? All of you. Do people in China and India, am I extending the invitation for them to come? Not really, because they're not able to do that. So sometimes when we say all, we don't mean all in the sense of every single person who's ever lived. Now, this phrase, all people or all men, will sometimes show up in other parts in the Bible. So let's see how this phrase, all people or all men, is used elsewhere. Titus 3, 1 through 2. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities. Okay, we have kind of the same thought process here, rulers and authorities. To be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Okay, generally there, we're to show courtesy towards all people in general. Acts 22, 14 through 15. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness to him, for him, to everyone of what you have seen and heard. This is Paul, and Jesus is telling him that you're going to be a witness to everyone of what you've seen and heard. Now, can Paul be a witness to everyone? Can Paul be a witness to every single person who's ever lived on all the face of the earth that was living at that time? So when the Bible says Paul needs to be a witness to everyone, does it mean everyone? I'm not playing a semantic game here. I'm just saying, does it mean every single person who's ever lived? Or is it a general way of saying everyone? Acts 21, 27 through 28. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia... Seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law in this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has deviled this holy place. So they're accusing Paul of doing what? Teaching everyone everywhere. Was Paul teaching everyone everywhere, literally? Was he in China preaching everyone everywhere? So when, when the Bible uses that expression, everyone everywhere, does it mean Every single person who's ever lived, or is it a general way of saying all types of people, a large group? Okay? Sometimes all can be a very generic way of just saying a large group of people. Not every single person who's ever lived. Now let's go back to that Timothy passage. God wants all people to be saved. Does that mean God wants every single person who's ever lived to be saved? Or does that mean God wants all kinds or classes or types of people? I'm giving you the Calvinist argument. The Calvinist argument says when God says he desires for all people to be saved, he means all classes of people. Kings, rulers, Jews, Gentiles, men, women, slave, free, black, white, types of people. All different kinds and classes of people. Not every single person who has ever lived past, present, and future. Now, if we keep reading the passage, we find out some more information. 
God desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. But look at verse 5. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Two words there, mediator and ransom. Based upon what we looked at last week, if Jesus is the mediator... For those who are suffering in hell, can that possibly be true? Can Jesus be an intercessor, a mediator for those that are in hell? And it says he gave himself as a ransom for all. It goes back to that argument. Did Jesus either give himself as a ransom, a literal, bona fide death on the cross in the place of, or did he just make it possible? Did he give a ransom to make it possible for all? So the Calvinist view says this, of this passage. It says, God desires for all people to be saved. The Calvinist would say, God desires for all types of people to be saved. His salvation is not limited just to Jews. His salvation is not just limited just to women. His salvation is not limited just to Asians. His salvation is for all types of people. And Jesus gave himself as a substitute, ransomed himself for those people, those all kinds of people. In Revelation 5, what do we see? All tribes, tongues, nations, peoples. Uh, there around the throne. Okay, that is the Calvinist answer. You can look at this text and you can see the Arminian viewpoint. It seems to contradict a lot of things we've said where it just says, if you take it at face value, God desires for all people to be saved. But here's the problem. Are all people saved? So God is desiring something that's not happening. So obviously there's something out there that overpowers the the all people being saved. So we're going to try to think about that question when we get to the next passage of Scripture. God has a desire, but it's not fulfilled. If God desires for all people to be saved and not all people are saved, then that must mean there's something out there that's preventing all people from getting saved and preventing God to get what he desires. The Arminians answer one way, the Calvinists answer another way. I'm not going to try to confuse you at this point. Let's just keep moving. Here's the next big passage of Scripture that Arminians will use to teach that Jesus died for all people everywhere. It's a a universal atonement. 2 Peter 3.9 The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness. But He is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Pretty plain, right? God is not willing or God is not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You've got two words in that passage of Scripture that we've got to understand. The two issues are the word willing or wishing. What does that mean? That God wills or wishes. And the other word is all. What does all mean? The Bible gives three overall descriptions of God's will. When we say God has a will... God desires, God wishes, God wills. What are we talking about? There's three big overarching types of descriptions of God's will in the Bible. And so if we look at these types of descriptions and try to, try to understand what Peter's saying here, we may understand kind of what he's talking about. So the first type of will of God is his, what we call, decreative will. His will of decree, his sovereign will. This is the ultimate, absolute, sovereign decree of God where he's going to do what he's going to do. 
He's sovereign. He's absolutely in control. He's going to do as he pleases. Nothing can stop this will. As a matter of fact, Job 42.2, I know that you can do all things, that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. This type of will means whatever God decrees, he will accomplish. Nothing can stop it. He will get it done. Now, if we take this definition of will into that Peter's passage, it kind of doesn't make a lot of sense. It would mean that God infallibly wills all people to be saved. And if that's his decreative will, then what would happen? What would be the result? If God willed for all people to be saved, what would happen? All people would be saved. And there wouldn't be a need to have to worry about people perishing or how those texts that talk about hell. And so, is this the type of willing that God is, that, that, that Peter's describing of God? Probably not the decreative will, okay? Now, there's another type of will of God. We see this all throughout the Bible. This is the preceptive. We get the word precept or law or command. This is the will of command. Let me give you a perfect example of a will of command. You guys are very familiar with it. The Ten Commandments. What are the Ten Commandments? Is that God's will? That is God's will to be obeyed. These are the decrees of God, the laws of God, the will of God that he has set forth for people to obey. But let me ask you a question. Is it like the decretive will of God? Is it always followed it through? Is the, are the Ten Commandments always obeyed by everybody? Can God's, decree, can God's perceptive will be broken? It's broken every day, right? There's people in the world right now that are not obeying the Ten Commandments. So God can lay down laws, God can lay down His will, His commands, and they can be broken. Okay? So that's a second. Is that what Peter's talking about here? That would be very awkward. It would mean that, that God is not willing, God is not allowing people to perish because it's against His law. That doesn't quite make sense. Is there another type of will of God? You've got his decreative will, which means God's going to get done what God's going to get done. There's his command will, which he lays forth laws. And then there's another type of will. We call it this, the will of disposition. The will of disposition. Well, it's not advancing. There it goes. The will of disposition. There it is. The will of disposition. This really speaks of God's desire. The emotional side of God. What God wishes, what God desires, what God wants to see happen. What pleases God. Now let me ask you a question. Because this is not the Calvinistic view. Let me, let me, let me put up a straw man that some people put up against Calvinism and, and let me just blow it to, to pieces. I've heard some people say that Calvinists believe that God is a sadistic God up there and he's getting all this glee and joy out of sending people to hell and that God is just this, this cosmic killjoy that just loves to damn people to hell. Does the Bible teach that view of God? Now, God is just, right? And God will execute his justice. But do we ever see God taking sadistic pleasure in the death of the wicked? No. As a matter of fact, let me give you a passage of Scripture right there in Ezekiel. Ezekiel 18.23. God says, Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that they should turn from this way and live? 
And the hypothetical answer there, the rhetorical question is, no, God doesn't take pleasure in the death of the wicked. It's going to kind of be like this. Let me give you an example. Let's say you're an earthly judge. You're a judge. And you have sworn an oath to uphold the law, to be just, to mete out punishment against criminals. And your own son has done something very vile and wicked and murdered and raped and pillaged and did all this just very illegal, immoral stuff. And you're the judge that actually has to give him the death sentence. You would do it because it's the right thing to do. To not do it would be breaking the law. To not do it would not be doing justice. But would you do it with happiness? As a father, you would do it with tears of anguish. You would do it because you know you had to do it, but it would break your heart to do it. And so when we talk about God's desire, God's will, that may be a good analogy to think that God doesn't take pleasure in the death of the wicked. So I think when Peter's talking about God's will here, it's God's desire. God has a desire that none should perish. It's his, it's his pleasure. It's his desire. Now, that's the word for wish or will, God's will. That still leaves us with a question. Who is the all? And I want you to open your Bibles to 2 Peter because I want us to look at context. Oftentimes, people will take this verse out of context and they'll just read that one passage of Scripture and they'll say, God desires for all people to be saved and come to repentance. But let's look at the whole flow of Peter's thought. Let's read first, 2 Peter 1.1. 1, 1. The audience. Who's Peter's audience? That may help us tell, to tell us who he's talking to and what this is all about. 2 Peter 1.1. 1, 1. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So who's, who's Peter talking to? Christians, those who have been justified, those who have faith in Jesus Christ. That's his audience. Okay, look at verse 10 of chapter 1. Therefore, brothers, who are the brothers? Who, who can be called brothers? Christians, be all more diligent to make your calling and election sure. So what's he telling, telling his audience? Christians, make sure of your election. Make sure that you understand that you're saved. Examine yourself to see if you're saved. Okay, so in the context of 1 Peter, he's talking to brothers, he's talking to Christians, he's talking to those who are elect. Now let's go to chapter 3, the immediate context. Let's go to chapter 3, verse 1. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. Who's beloved? Christians, brothers, those that are saved. Okay, now let's go down to 3, verse 8. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. So who did he, who's he addressing again? Beloved, brothers, Christians. Who's he talking to? Christians. Now let's go to verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards... You, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Who's he talking to? Who's the you? God is, not, God is patient towards you. The context dictates who the all is. So who's the all? 
Christians, the elect. And what the Calvinist view would say this, God is not willing that any of his elect should perish, but that all of his elect should come to repentance. And the context is God is waiting a long time. God is being patient until that final day when all of his elect are brought in. So he's talking about being patient towards those that have been chosen and wanting them to come to repentance. That's the Calvinistic view. Now let's say that you don't buy that. Let's say you don't buy the Calvinistic view that I presented on both sides about how you interpret all in these texts. I will give you something from John Piper that's very, very hard to get your mind around, but I wanted to share it with you because he's come up with um, an argument. Um, In the back of his book, The Pleasures of God, he has an appendix article called, Are There Two Wills in God? Now, we've already seen there's what? There's three wills. He makes, let me give you his argument, okay? He says this, If God wills or desires that all be saved, and yet not all are saved, then there must be something preventing the accomplishment of God's will. Good logic there, right? If God says, I will something, and it doesn't happen, there's got to be something that's preventing it from happening. And so the question is, what's the thing that prevents it from happening? What prevents the all people from being saved? Well, you've only got two possibilities. Let me give you John Piper's quote. He says this, I see only two possibilities. One is that there's a power in the universe greater than God's power, which is frustrating him by overruling what he wills. Neither the Calvinist nor Arminian affirms this. The other possibility is that God wills not to save all, even though he's willing to save all, because there's something else that he wills more, which would be lost if he exerted his sovereign power to save all. Both Calvinists and Arminians affirm two wills in God. Both can say that God wills for all to be saved. Here's the difference. The difference between Calvinists and Arminians lies not in whether there are two wills in God, but in what they say the higher commitment is. What does God will more than saving all? Okay, let me just stop his quote right there and let's follow his train of thought. If God wills something and it doesn't happen, there's got to be a reason why it doesn't happen. What's the reason? He's going to give the Calvinist reason and the Arminian reason, and I'm just going to lay it out there for you to, to struggle with. Okay, let's go through the rest of his quote. The answer given by Arminians is that human self-determination and the possibility of a resulting love relationship with God are more valuable than saving all people by sovereign, efficacious grace. The answer given by Calvinists is that the greater value is the manifestation of the full range of God's glory and wrath and the humbling of man so that he enjoys giving all credit to God for his salvation. Now let me paraphrase John Piper here in case that was confusing. For the Arminian, the greater thing that God values is human free will. And that's why not all are saved. If God desires for all people to be saved, and not all people are saved, then there must be something higher than God's will, and that is human free will, which means that not everybody are saved because they didn't use their free will to get saved. 
The Calvinist would say, God desires all to be saved, but he has a higher desire than that, the desire to show forth all of his attributes and save only his elect in his sovereignty. Now, is that confusing or what? (laughs) A little bit deep. That's his argument. So you have two texts. You've got the first Timothy and you've got the second Peter, where God desires all people to be saved. What is the desire? What is the all? Now let's look at another one. This is one that somebody actually asked me. Um, I think it was Jack. Jack was involved in a, uh, went to another church and, um, on vacation or something, and the, the pastor was there was, I think, bashing Southern Baptists for being Calvinistic and used this passage of Scripture and was proving something. And I'd said, okay, I'm, I'm, I'll deal with this Scripture on Wednesday nights because this may be a Scripture that some people will use to talk about this whole idea of limited atonement. So Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews 2, 9 through 17. Context, context, context. I've highlighted some words for you there. Let's start in verse 9. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Okay, it says right there, Jesus tasted death for who? Everyone. Jesus died for everyone. So we've got to ask the question again. Who's the everyone? Is the everyone every single person who's lived past, present, and future? The Calvinists would say, no, that's not the everyone. The Arminian would say, yes, Jesus didn't die in the place of them, but Jesus died to make salvation possible for them. Let's look at the context and see if Hebrews helps us understand who the everyone is. Let's keep reading. Verse 10, for it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist and bringing who? Many sons to glory. Now, does he say all sons? Many sons should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one origin. That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And begin, behold, and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Okay, you've got a lot of descriptions there about these people, the everyone. What does he say? Many sons, those that are sanctified, brothers. He quotes Psalms and Isaiah there, and this is really Jesus speaking. In verse 13, he says, The children of God you have what? Given me. Does that sound familiar? What does John 17 say? All that the Father has given me will come to me. The offspring of Abraham. Do these words modify the everyone? What does it sound like the writer of Hebrews is saying? These people are. Who is the everyone? Many sons children of Abraham, children of God, brothers. It sounds like elect. It sounds like Christians. 
And then to top it all off, what does verse 17 say? He made what? Propitiation for the sins of who? The people. Now this goes back to last week's talk when we said, did Jesus actually make propitiation or did he make it hypothetical? Was it an actual absorbing of God's wrath in the place of sinners or did he just do that to make it possible for sinners to come to faith with the possibility that nobody would ever come? So, what I want us to do is I want us to look at this. I told you last week to look at that story in 1 Samuel chapter 3 about Eli's sons. Interesting little thing hidden in the Old Testament about atonement. Now, if you remember anything about Eli's sons, they were blasphemous, they were, they, they, they were immoral, uh, they were having sexual relationships with prostitutes right in front of the temple, the, the tabernacle, the tent of meeting. Um, they were taking bribes from the people. They were wicked. Eli didn't do anything about it. And you remember little Samuel? God calls Samuel and says, here am I, here am I. And then God says, Samuel, I want you to go give a message of judgment to Eli. So Samuel's first message as a little kid is to go to Eli, his, proto- his, his mentor, and say, I've got a word of judgment against you and your household. And let's read that word of judgment that Samuel had to tell Eli in 1 Samuel three twelve through 14. On that day... I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And I declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. Therefore, I swear to the house of Eli that the the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned by sacrifice or offering forever. That's the strongest judgment I've seen in the Bible. What's he saying? Never, ever, forever is there going to be a sacrifice of atonement for your house, Eli. Now we can look at that and just say, well, that's Old Testament. That means that that, that goats and bulls and rams would not be sacrificed for Eli's family. But what's he saying here? Forever. So let me just ask you a question. Just a simple question based upon that passage of Scripture. When Jesus died on the cross, did he atone and cover for the sins of Eli's family? We'd have to say, no. Well, then you've got a situation where Jesus is dying on the cross and he's not dying for the sins of at least Eli's family. Because Jesus, God promises these sins will never be atoned for by sacrifice forever. So obviously, if you just look at this Old Testament passage, Jesus made a specific sacrifice on the cross for a specific group of people, and he didn't sacrifice himself for Eli's family. So there's an Old Testament example there of something that's really scary, that their sin was so wicked that God would never atone for it, even in the death of Jesus. Now, we've talked a lot about these problem passages. Let me just give you my my personal opinion. This is where it comes down to Sean's Sean's journey, Sean's opinion, why this all makes sense in Sean's mind. And here's where it boils down to me. The whole issue of the Trinity. The whole issue of the Trinity. Because in the Calvinistic scheme, at least in my mind, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all work in perfect unity to bring about the salvation of sinners. In the Arminian or semi-Pelagian view, 
they don't work in operation together. They, they're somewhat frustrated, and you don't see a coherent trinity working together in the Arminian scheme. So let's just do some review here. What did God the Father do before the foundation of the world? The Father. The Father chose, the Father predestined a group of people to be saved. Okay, so the Father's doing some choosing, right? The Father is making a choice, He's electing. And then what does the Father do? He gives these people to who? Jesus. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Those that you've given me out of the world will come to me. I'm not praying for them, Father. I'm I'm not praying for the world, Father. I'm praying for those that you gave me out of the world. So the Father chose the elect before the foundation of the world and gave them to Jesus. Okay, so you have the Father doing something very specific. What does Jesus do on the cross? He dies specifically for who? Those people the Father gave to him. He dies in their place as a substitute specifically for them. He doesn't die to make salvation possible. He doesn't die to make it hypothetical. He dies specifically for them because the Father gave them to him as a gift. And then as we'll talk about next week, what does the Holy Spirit do? The Holy Spirit comes in time and regenerates the elect and gives them a new heart and and causes them to be born again. And so the Father elects, the Son dies, and the Holy Spirit regenerates the same group of people so that all three persons of the Trinity are accomplishing the salvation and not one sinner who was predestined, who was paid for, and who was regenerated will be lost. They work together to bring about the salvation. So here's a question. All that the Father gives to Jesus will come. Does everybody come? No. Why? Well, because they weren't given to Jesus by the Father. Now, let's talk about the Arminian scheme. How the Trinity works in the Arminian scheme. Remember, what is the foreknowledge view of election? God looks down through the corridors of time and sees who will choose him based upon their free will. Hypothetically, what could happen? Nobody could come. Nobody could use their free will, hypothetically. Now, obviously, an Arminian would say, no, you know, obviously people are going to choose God because people have the ability to choose him. But hypothetically, if left up to human free will, there could be a hypothetical reality that nobody would choose. So the Father looks down, and really, does the Father elect in the, in the Arminian scheme? The Father doesn't really elect. He ratifies. He puts his stamp of approval on what he sees. If God sees a sinner using their free will to accept Jesus, God goes, I elect them. Who's in the driver's seat? The sinner. God responds to the sinner and elects them based upon what he sees with the possibility that no one would ever trust if they use their free will. So the father is looking down. He's looking to see what what sinners are going to do, and he, he ratifies or elects based upon what he sees. Okay, that's the conditional election view. Jesus, in the Arminian view, dies on the cross, but he doesn't die a substitutionary atonement. He dies not in the place of sinners. He suffers as an example to show that sin is a big deal to God, but Jesus could have died on the cross and nobody come to him. So you have the Father, you know, hypothetically, not, not really being able to, to, like, to save anybody. Jesus not really dying on the cross for anybody in particular, just making people savable. And then the Holy Spirit. 
if the Holy Spirit gives to all people provenient grace and some people reject it, and some people don't cooperate, then you have the Holy Spirit failing in his mission. The Holy Spirit can come and draw and woo and do all he can do to bring a sinner to faith, but ultimately it's up to the sinner to decide whether he's going to accept or reject Jesus. In my mind, and this is just my opinion, that shows a very weak and powerless God who tries to do all he can do to save sinners but really can't do anything. He's at the mercy of the sinner. God only elects based upon what he sees. Jesus doesn't die in the place of anybody. He dies just to make it possible. The Holy Spirit really can't bring you to regeneration. He can only woo you and draw you until you use your free will. In the Arminian scheme, there could be a possibility that nobody ever gets saved. Realistically, nobody could be saved in the Arminian scheme. And then you'd have God sending Jesus to die and being an utter failure, sending the Holy Spirit to, to woo people and being an utter failure. You've got the Trinity being a failure, being frustrated in their mission because they can't accomplish what they've, what they've set out to accomplish. Now, an Arminian would probably argue and say, well, you're talking about hypothetical here. People do use their free will. People do come to Christ. So it wasn't a failure after all. You know, people are saved. But that still doesn't answer the question of what the intention of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are. In my mind, and this is my opinion, you can choose to disagree with me, the Arminian system of theology is very man-centered, while the Calvinistic system of theology is very God-centered. And that may be a harsh thing to say because I don't think an Arminian would say, well, we don't, we're not man-centered, we, we believe in God, but yet when you look at their theology, who's the ultimate determiner of everything? You are. You've got free will. You're not dead in your sins. The Father sees you doing something and he responds to what you do. Jesus didn't really... Now think about this. What hope does it give you in Jesus? I'm starting to preach here real quick. What hope does it give you in Jesus if he didn't die in your place? That he only died to make it, make it possible. And you know that you're dead in your sins. And that without Jesus, you would never come to faith in him. Does that give you much hope? Does believing in a definite, real, bona fide, 100% it is finished atonement give you the encouragement to know that Jesus died in your place? He took your sins. He really propitiated God's wrath. And you were given to the Father by Jesus. I mean, you were given to Jesus from the Father. And he gave you as a gift to Jesus and it wasn't anything in you that moved the Father to do that it's simply because he wanted to do it and then in time the Holy Spirit came and opened your eyes to this truth and gave you the new birth and so the Father did something the Son did something the Spirit did something they all work together in complete harmony they're going to save you infallibly and at the end when you step foot into heaven what's the one thing that you can't do you can't boast you can't raise your hand in heaven and say I I I what can you say? God, 